0: There was once a blacksmith who probably understood the value of trials better than most. A few years after he had given his life to God, he was approached by an observant person without a Christian faith. And the man asked the blacksmith, why is it that you seem to have so much trouble in your life. I've been watching you since you joined the church, and it seems to me to have like twice as many trials and difficulties as you had had before. I thought that when a person gave his life to God, well, the purpose was actually having less troubles. And the blacksmith, he gave a joyful smile And he picked up his piece of metal and he just continued to work on it. And he said, Do you see this piece of iron? It will serve as a spring to a carriage. And springs can be tricky things because they have to be made extremely durable. And in order to do so, I put the metal through a long and difficult process called tempering. And the blacksmith then plunged that piece of metal into the red-hot fire, let it glow to a bright red, and then he pulled it out and he dunked it in that bucket of ice-cold water. And he explained that this process of going from hot to cold had to be done many times over and when the metal would finally become pliable enough he would heat it back up and then he would just hammer on it relentlessly and he said you know pieces of iron that are brittle those pieces normally just get thrown into the scrap pile but carriage springs Well, they are some of the most valuable iron to be found. The blacksmith continued as his listener just nodded along. He said, the way I see it, God saves us for something more than just the good times. Oh, we'll have good times for we'll get heaven. But he also wants us for service just as I want this piece of iron so the blacksmith said that he's made us workable and pliable through the times of testing more than anything else which is why he said that i've always learned to say to him test me in any way you choose lord for i want to be a valuable service to you we come to this place in the book of Matthew where we find Jesus tested as a sort of like inauguration to his earthly ministry. And it's going to prepare him for the purposes that God had always had in mind for him. Jesus was ready to be tested in any way for he wanted to be a valuable service to God. Some people may feel that it's a little unnecessary to have a chapter 4 after all that happened in chapter 3. Last week if you're here we took a look at a couple of scenes that unfolded in that last chapter. This shadowy figure emerges from the forest. He's wearing these hides. He's got dried bits of honey in his beard from the wild, sweet locusts that he loved to snack on. I imagine him looking like, you know, a little bit like, a, like an old Viking warrior. Only moment. His name was John the Baptist, and his message was short and sweet. Repent, for the kingdom of God is near. And when he spotted Jesus, He said, Behold, it's a Savior who will take away the sins of the world. Oh, it would have been quite a show. And immediately following, Jesus was then baptized in the Jordan River. And everyone then witnessed the heavens suddenly being parted. God's Spirit descending like a dove. And then came God's thunderous voice. This is my Son in whom I am well pleased. (laughs) I mean, now that's an entrance. That is how you properly kick off a ministry. And after the apparent success of that chapter three, well, then comes a necessary chapter four, where Jesus will be taken from what was an emotional and spiritual high to a very trying time in his life. He will go from this sort of mountaintop experience to the desert valley. And so verse 1 begins like this. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, or some translations will say desert because that's what the wilderness was. To be tempted there by the devil. Now, I don't know about you, but I find it oddly reassuring that Jesus sometimes found himself in desert places in his life. And it's important to note that he hadn't gotten there because of sin or any sort of poor choices, it was apparently right where God wanted him to be because it was God's very spirit that had led him there. Most of the time when we, uh, when we face trials or maybe these big temptations, we may have this tendency to wonder, where did I go wrong? How Could this happen? Maybe even, God, where did you go? And sometimes, when we're trying to honor God, we may feel that he has deserted us. But what's really happened is he's just led us into the desert. And he may do so because, like a blacksmith tempering his metal. Well, God allows testing to give us opportunity to be strengthened in our faith. James tells us that it isn't God that's doing the testing, but that he will sometimes allow it to happen in our lives in order to further strengthen our resolve in him. And we'll see this in Jesus. After the scene where Jesus is tempted by the devil, Jesus will then resolutely set out to fulfill the purposes that God had in store for him. And of course, it also needs to be said, probably, that, well, sometimes the trials that we may face aren't always God wants us to endure. Sometimes we face some pretty difficult circumstances as a result of our choosing, right? It was our poor choices that led us there. Take, for example, Edith, who was a mother of eight children. She was coming home from her neighbor's house one Saturday afternoon, and things seemed just a little too quiet as she walked across the front yard. And so she got inside and curious, she peered out her screen door and saw five of her youngest children huddled together, concentrating on something. She crept closer to them, trying to discover the center of the attention, of their attention, and she couldn't believe her eyes. Smack dab in the middle of that circle were five baby skunks. Edith screamed at the top of her lungs, quick children, run! Each kid grabbed a skunk and ran. (laughs) See, sometimes it's us Who is grabbing a hold of and don't want to let go of some of the things that God has warned us of. And those trials, well, we bring upon ourselves. Those kind of trials really give us opportunity for repentance. Where we would decide, okay, I am done doing this my way. And I'm going to choose God's way instead. Uh, If you come back next week, we'll actually talk a little bit more about that. But when we have chosen God's way and are attempting to honor him and find ourselves being tested or just generally maybe in a desert place in our lives, I think it's appropriate for us to ask the question, what may God be preparing for me? like a piece of iron being prepared for service. Throughout scripture, we will see God leading people into desert places for periods of time in order to test and prepare them to serve his purposes in some kind of great way. You think back to some of those great men and women, Moses, David, I mean, the entire nation of Israel <laughs> spent their time in the desert. John the Baptist, Paul, Jesus, of course, and there are even others. And for each one of them, their desert experience would lead them to develop three things. These aren't in your notes, I couldn't fit them in, all right? But they might be noteworthy. Three things. A great humility, a dependence on God, and a sense of gratitude. Which, get this, will all be virtues that Jesus will use to do battle with Satan here in this story. It's gonna go on in verse two. That was just verse one. We got a couple more hours to go. Verse two. For 40 days and 40 nights, Jesus fasted and became, well, very hungry. Satan waited until it seemed that Jesus was at his weakest point. For Jesus, 40 days. For some of us who are prone to becoming hangry, <laughs> that window's much smaller, isn't it? And the fasting that Jesus practices here as a sort of spiritual discipline certainly would have left him physically and emotionally weak. And yet I would guess that he was likely at a spiritual strong point. Because before even being tested by Satan, you know, he had already been testing himself That's a purpose of fasting. Maybe some of you have done that before. One of the purposes is to examine yourself, to ensure that nothing has become a priority to you over God. And so Jesus, before even this first test will come, had already established that even more than a full belly, his highest priority was going to be his connection with God. When it comes to fasting, we will normally refer to it, of course, always um, as being going without no food or maybe it's little food. And it's because that just happens to be one of the most difficult things for us to go without. But the principle can and really probably should be applied to almost anything in our life. We should, your next note, test ourselves. In uh, 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5, Paul says, Examine yourselves to see if your faith is genuine. Test yourselves. Surely you know that Jesus Christ is among you. If not, you've failed the test of genuine faith. And a genuine faith is just simply one that has ensured that God remains the utmost priority in life. I would say that in our on-demand society that so easily lends itself to compulsiveness, addictions. It is good practice for us to regularly examine what our hearts are craving most or what may be the main focus of our life. And so a healthy question for us to test ourselves with is this. Would it be easier to go without God or be without, and you get to fill in that blank. And so Jesus had been fasting. And in verse 3, says, During that time, the devil came to him. And he said to him, Son of God tell these stones to become loaves of bread. But Jesus told him, no. The scriptures say, people do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now these tests that Jesus will be tempted with, we will likely recognize as temptations that we all regularly encounter. And you know, we should take great hope that although these areas may be areas in which we are prone to struggle in, that Jesus, our Savior, is gonna show the power to conquer each one. And the first area that we see in here is one of selfishness. Now, it's an interesting thing with the first test that it wouldn't have necessarily been wrong for Jesus to miraculously provide food. After all, he's going to do it a little later in his ministry, where he will feed a couple of massive crowds with bread and fish. And so the issue wasn't really doing the miracle itself. The issue was the motive for doing so. Satan was... Trying to persuade Jesus to use God's gift for his own selfish purposes. Oh man, and it would have been a great temptation because it would have immediately satisfied Jesus's, what would have been Jesus' greatest want in that moment. And isn't that always the lure of selfishness? See, selfishness demands instant gratification. And it makes us feel that we have got to have it, and we've got to have it now. And such a perspective often trades God's long term plan of blessing for just a simple moment of pleasure, or maybe it's comfort. In fact, you know, sometimes temptation, I would say, isn't just a choice between right and wrong. Temptation is sometimes the choice between settling for less and waiting for God's best. Now, that one rhymes, so I expect you to remember that one for next week, all right? There's going to be a small quiz. In 1972, there was some research done on young children, which is now just sort of widely known as the Stanford Marshmallow Experiment. Some of you may have heard of this one. And in their research, psychologists tested 600 kids from ages 4 to 6 by offering each kid a single marshmallow. And they were told that they could eat that one marshmallow immediately or if they could resist eating it right away, well, they were then promised a second marshmallow instead of just the one. And the child was then left in the room with their marshmallow for a torturous 15 minutes. There were hidden cameras set up so the researchers could observe the children. And some of those children just ate that marshmallow as soon as the researcher left the room. Others tried as hard as they could to resist the temptation. Some of the kids would sing songs to try to distract themselves, others would cover their eyes. Some of them would cover the marshmallow. And there were quite a few others that would really flirt with temptation by just trying to lick the marshmallow (laughs) without actually biting into it. (laughs) And the results were recorded. The participants were then tracked throughout high school on into adulthood. And four decades later, they discovered that a child's ability to resist the instant gratification of a marshmallow tended to correlate with beneficial outcomes later, such as healthier weights, for one, but also higher test scores, better income, a reportedly uh, happier marriages and careers. And it's the power of choosing delayed gratification, which is to intentionally steer ourselves away from what is our natural selfishness, you could say. And to do this, well, we should take notes that Jesus used scripture. See, it's difficult to keep a selfish perspective when our minds and our hearts are being saturated with God's Word. And of course, Jesus, He's gonna to respond to each one of Satan's tests with Scripture, which would lead me to believe that if we are not rooting ourselves regularly in God's Word, man, then we are putting ourselves at a serious disadvantage when it comes to all the temptations that are gonna come our way in life. It's Scripture. And Jesus says, repeats that scripture, that man shall not live on bread alone, but by every word that comes from God. Meaning that we better not just be relying on ourselves to be satisfied in life. Blessing doesn't come through selfish desires. It only comes by living on the words of God. Jesus would even say in John 10.10, 10, he says, listen, Satan's purpose is to steal, kill, and destroy. Jesus says, my purpose is to give you a rich and satisfying life. The next temptation that we'll see in here, beginning in verse 5, is going to be one of pride. The next one says that then the devil took him to the holy city, Jerusalem, to the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, jump off. For the scriptures say he will order his angels to protect you, and they will hold you up with their hands so you won't even hurt your foot on a stone. And Jesus responded with scripture again. The scriptures also say that you must not test the Lord You're God. Now, you know, when I read through this, I think of a triple dog dare. I assume you're all very familiar with the escalation of dares. Right? When you were young and you were out on the playground, it probably just started with a simple dare. But then, well, it went to a double dare as soon as your friends noticed any amount of fear in you. And then if you were really unlucky it would escalate once more. And they would say, I triple dog dare you. (laughs) And every little kid knows that there's nothing that beats a triple dog dare, right? Like that, that's just the ultimate. There's nothing above that. And the worst part about a triple dog dare is that you're really made to feel, aren't you? Like you've got to prove yourself now. See, it's an assault on pride. Jesus, in a sense, is sort of triple-dog dared here because Satan is implying that Jesus must not really be in control if he can't even prove it. And again, for Jesus to do this act, it wouldn't have necessarily been wrong for him to do. In fact, he will show his power And his control over nature many times over throughout the Gospels. Again, the issue is motive. And Jesus wasn't motivated by self glory, he was motivated to glorify God. And that's Satan's strategy to try to get us to glorify us. It's what pride does. Pride insists that we're as good as God. This was actually one of the very first temptations that we ever see from Satan. When Adam and Eve were tested back in the Garden of Eden, way back in Genesis chapter 3, the beginning of our Bibles, Satan said to Eve about eating the forbidden fruit back there in verse 5. He says, God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it. Oh, and you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. Oh, to be like God. Well, that doesn't sound too bad. Now, most people probably would never say out loud that they're as good as God for fear of being struck down by lightning. But, oh, they may live that way with their lives by insisting on living their own way. In our pride, we may believe that we know how to do life better than the creator of life himself. I'll never forget the first time that I played Jenga with my kids, and they were still pretty young at the time. We dumped all of those blocks out on the floor. We built up the tower. And I explained to them how to play the game. I even gave them some very helpful tips on how to remove each one of the blocks. I showed them the the tap test. You know that one, right? To see which one you could take out uh, the easiest. And my daughter... Didn't care. (laughs) Now, she went first since she was the youngest. And being pretty young at the time, I was sure that she was going to need some assistance. And so I reached out my hand to assist her. And again, she didn't care for my help. I advised her not to go for the block that she was planning on trying to remove. And you know what? She didn't care. Oh, she gave me that defiant look. And I mean, I'll never forget it. She violently, I mean violently, yanked out a block from the side of the tower so hard that the whole tower sort of bounced up, came back down, teetered back and forth, and then amazingly stood standing. (laughs) Now listen, as a father trying to grow their kids up in the way of Jenga, this was like a worst-case scenario. Because every first turn of hers thereafter... She just destroyed that tower. She was so proud of herself after that first turn that it had made her doubt any sort of counsel that anyone could give her afterwards. And Satan will do the same thing with us. He will work as hard as he can to get us to doubt God's provision in our lives. We'll question God's plans when maybe they haven't gone our way. We'll doubt His presence when we feel unjustly treated. We'll question His concern for us when a prayer seemingly goes unanswered. We'll doubt the very idea that we can depend on God, and so instead, Will depend on ourselves. It's a pathway of pride. And for Jesus, well, his trust and dependence on God the Father was never in doubt. And you know, as a result, well, he had no need to prove himself to Satan. God had already proved himself trustworthy. The last temptation that we'll see in here is going to be one of greed. In verse 8, it says, Next, the devil took him to the peak of a very high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. He said, I will give it all to you if you will kneel down and worship me. Get out of here, Satan, Jesus told him. For the scriptures say... You must worship the Lord your God and serve only him. And then it says the devil went away and angels came and took care of Jesus. And so enticement was, look, you can have all of this. Have you ever felt that kind of seduction in life? And all we normally have to do is just... Compromise a little bit. Sometimes it's the grass is greener on the other side syndrome, which is a perspective that isn't normally born out of rational thinking. It's a ploy to tempt us into greed. And Satan will always be sowing these seeds of discontentment, trying to make us feel that all we really need is just what? A little bit more. Just one more dessert. A little more money. A little hotter spouse. A few hundred more likes on our social media. Greed makes us feel deprived. <clears throat> And you know what? We see this temptation also back when Satan first began tempting back in Genesis chapter three with Adam and Eve in verse one of chapter three says, one day he, Satan asked the woman, did God really say that you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? Now, of course, God didn't say that. And the only reason that Satan would suggest it is to make Eve feel that God may be holding out on her. That she could have all of this. But God was being stingy with what he offered. You know, one of the big the big difference between the promises of Satan and the promises of God is that Satan will always claim, look, you can have all of this. Whereas God says, you can have all of me. And when we choose all of God, we find fulfillment. When we choose all of this, we're always left feeling that all we really need now is just a little bit more. God uses these desert temptations in this story, like a blacksmith working with his metal, allowing Jesus, I think, to become steadfast in his resolve to serve and follow God. And God will at times give us the same opportunity to be strengthened in our faith. Before we move into a time of communion, I want to point out just a couple of things that are in your notes also. Jesus' time in the desert here also demonstrates for us a couple of really important aspects of who he is. The first one is that we have a Savior who has reversed the results of the fall. Adam and Eve failed when their faith and their obedience was tested back in Genesis chapter 3, which resulted in the consequences of sin, which we now all deal with still today. But where man failed, the Son of God succeeded In resisting and conquering Satan. And Jesus has shown himself then to be without sin, and therefore a perfect, holy, a lasting sacrifice that would pay the death penalty that the Bible says that our sins deserve. Look what Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 15:21, it'll be up on screen for you. He says, so you see, just as death came into the world through a man, Adam, now the resurrection from the dead has begun through another man, Jesus. Just as everyone dies because we all belong to Adam, everyone who belongs to Christ will be given new life. Through communion each week, the band can come up through communion each week. We celebrate this new life available to us because of the sacrifice that Jesus made for our sins up there on the cross. The bread reminds us of the life that He gave on our behalf, and the juice represents the blood which wipes away our penalty of sin. It is through his blood that we're offered forgiveness. And today, during communion, as a result of the temptation that Jesus faced, we can also be reminded that we have a Savior who relates to us. You know, one of the more difficult things, I think, for us to wrap our minds around concerning Jesus is that he was both fully God and fully human at the same time. And a lot of the Jesus stories that we have, a lot of the ones that we'll see in the book of Matthew really kind of show off his divinity. But this story gives us a little window into the human experience of Jesus. He became hungry, just as we do. He faced the loneliness that we sometimes face in life. Jesus was tempted in all of the same ways that we find ourselves tempted, assuring us that God identifies with all the hurts the struggles, all of the temptations that we we regularly face. In Hebrews 4.15 says this high priest of ours, Jesus understands our weaknesses for he faced all of the same testings we do yet he did not sin. So let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God There we will receive His mercy, and we will find to help us when we need it most. Today, through communion, we get to confidently approach God with our messed up lives. Not fearing repercussions, but knowing that He relates to all that we go through and the struggles that we have. And he shows grace and mercy as a result. I think of this a little bit as I would my teenage son. I have a teenager now. And uh, he has a lot of, well, teenage issues. And teenage drama. And when he comes to me, maybe to vent Or it might be to seek advice. I don't dismiss him or tell him that it's crazy to deal with such silly things. And you want to know why? (laughs) Because I've been there. Man, I remember those turbulent teenage years. I can relate. And it compels me then to show compassion. And how much more is the compassion, the patience, and the love of God? The Bible says that it is unending. And so today we will take some time for communion. If you have a faith and a belief in Jesus as your Savior, you are invited to do this. And just simply remember the sacrifice that he gave. Let me pray for you. You can get up. You can take those elements. Do it on your own at your seat and uh, then we'll sing one more song of worship and we'll end with a blessing. Lord, thank you that as we come to you now in this time of communion, God, that we can come to you boldly for you offer us such amazing compassion and grace and mercy. Thank you, Lord, that you have displayed to us that kind of love that we can depend on you in life. And so, Lord, as we sort of cast maybe our troubles, maybe our temptations on you this morning, Lord, would you meet us there? Would you meet us in our time of need? And would you walk through life with us, God, whether we may be on the mountaintop or maybe we're experiencing the desert valley, Thank you, God, that you are with us. In your name, amen.